please. Lord Jesus, we want to crown you King of Kings, Lord of Lords today because you are. Uh, Lord, that's never going to change no matter what we think. But Lord, help us think correctly. Help us think biblically and put you on the throne that you deserve. Lord, we just uh, ask that we could worship you in spirit and in truth today. Guide us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, am I so much more comfortable today than I was last week. Hey, we, uh, we have these little blue cards. Uh, they're called the connection card, and we would love for you to fill one out, especially if you're with us maybe for the first or second time, and uh, fill that out, and we can have a record of your attendance, know who's worshiping with us today. So thank you very much for doing that. You can either put that in the offering plate uh, here about the middle of the service, or you can take that to the connection center and turn that in. Okay, there's prayer request cards available as well for everybody, so please take advantage of that. Hey, um, so as you know, today is the kickoff for Hebrews. Brother Philip will be bringing our introduction to Hebrews. And I was, as I was thinking and praying about Hebrews, you just see throughout that book the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, another sister passage that reminds us of that is Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Could we just uh, stand and read this together? Reading together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And we're going to sing that together in just a minute.
once more. Lord God, we uh, pause now, continuing in an attitude of worship as we give today, Lord. May every gift given just be blessed and be used to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring men and women, boys and girls, into a saving knowledge of Jesus, to bring other men and women, boys and girls, into a deeper relationship through sanctification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just... Uh, ask that uh, you bless each and every gift given, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I shared with you earlier, uh, we're going to try to sing and think about the preeminence of Jesus, and no song says that better than, to, in my mind than this next one we're going to do. The choir and orchestra uh, is going to sing a song that reminds us that he, his name is most excellent. How excellent.
thy name in all the earth. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. At the mention of your name, storms cease. At the mention of your name, mountains move. At the mention of the name of Jesus, demons tremble. For there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, right? So I'm sitting on the front row, and a little girl says over here to, is that her brother? Mason. Mason. It's not over yet. It's just a singing. (laughs) And I said to both of them, honey, we're just getting started. (laughs) All right. What a blessing. I mean, the music was shorter. Are you tired from preaching last week? I mean... Are you just trying to bless the pastor with more time to talk, right? Amen. All right. Well, Hebrews chapter 1. Let's give honor to the reading of God's Word. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's a joy to start a new study in the Word of God. The book of Hebrews is intriguing, it is thrilling, but it will also scare you to death. If you are a, have been a believer for a long time, you know that the Living Bible is a Bible that you should not study alone, right, just by itself. Because it's a paraphrase. It's not a Bible translation at all. And when Dr. Kenneth Taylor wrote that in 1970-ish, about the time I was born, he never intended for it to be your only source of studying the Word because, again, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Uh, I had to look through all my staff members this morning to find which heretic only studied out of the Living Bible, and it so happened to be Don Currents. (laughs) Yep, yep. Yep, he didn't know what I was doing when I followed him around. But he has that green copy of the Living Bible, and bless his heart, it's the only one he ever reads. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But if you came to faith in Christ as a child uh, or as a young adult, and the people you associated with as believers only had the Living Bible, and they said, well, you need to read Hebrews 6. Here's what you will read. There is no use trying to bring you back to the Lord again if you have once understood the good news. And tasted for yourself the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. And know how good the word of God is and felt the mighty powers of the world to come. And then have turned against God. You cannot bring yourself to repent again if you have nailed the Son of God to the cross again by rejecting him. Holding him up to mocking and public shame. If you read that in the Living Bible, you think your thoughts are, I'm done. You know, can a believer lose his or her salvation? Uh, Those are things that we're going to plow through in the book of Hebrews, just to pique your interest. Many times I've been asked, well, who is Melchizedek? You've got to wait till Hebrews 7 for us to talk about Melchizedek. I did a wedding once for one of my dearest friends. His daughter was getting married. Her name is Alicia. And the man she was marrying, marrying, his name was Melchizedek Cordova Abanez III. So Yes, yes, so I've actually met Melchizedek <laughs> on one occasion, but no, seriously, we, we look into the scripture and we're going to study it together and it's going to be a, a wonderful, thrilling study in the Word of God. Here at FBCO, we believe in the exposition of the scriptures. We are about many things. But the exposition of the scriptures is the hub of what our church is about. 
We believe in accurately handling the Word of God. We believe in preaching it with light and with heat. The very way that the Word of God is written. We believe that the Word of God must be explained and must be applied in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. This means that we need to have a level of pre-understanding as we come to any given book of the Bible. It just makes sense, doesn't it, young people? That you would have a level of understanding about a particular book and the Bible before you actually dive into it. The background of a book is crucial to understanding the exposition. The background actually forms the frame of reference for the exposition of the Scripture. So, think of the background information like a garden. The land needs to be tilled. It needs to be raked. You need to have furrows made if you're going to have seeds grow and have a fruitful garden. So I know this is going to be a little different this morning. But please listen to me. The, the preliminary groundwork is vitally important for us to navigate through the book of Hebrews so that we stay tight to the text and we also don't go off into any kind of erroneous views. So I will say this is going to be a little more academic than you're used to hearing, okay? You may feel like you're sitting in a Bible school, Bible college class at some point during this sermon, but that's okay. We need to think about historical things. We need to think about structure. We need to think about theology. So I hope that this will provide you a better foundation as we study Hebrews together. I know the building when it is finished is more impressive. But let's make sure. I know that's, that's more exciting when you see the building completed. But we have to do the preliminary groundwork to know what we're doing. So commit yourself to follow me. Did you get one of the copies that we ordered of the notes? Where you can take notes? Uh, I think we, I don't know if we ran out. but We ran out they're coming more this week. More of them are coming this week. Praise the Lord. Thanks to Jeffrey for ordering those and Brittany getting those for us. And we'll have you a copy of those if you would like to have them. And you can take notes as we go through. So commit yourself through the next few weeks, months, and yes, possibly years. <laughs> so that you will have a greater benefit of the exposition of the book of Hebrews. I also encourage you, and there's a reason for this, to begin to read the book of Hebrews regularly. And here's what I would add. I think you need to do it out loud. I know that sounds crazy, but it's my belief that it's not simply epistolary in its writing, not like a normal letter. Hebrews was written as a sermon. I'll prove it to you as we go through the actual text of Scripture. But be disciplined. And it would be better... For you to read it some during the week and not do a cram session on Saturday night right before the sermon. I think it's better to come in with the passage in your mind than to see it cold. Okay? Now, here's what this morning is going to be about. All right? I'm giving it the heading of what is the place of origin and what is the destination of this letter. Please hear me. This is so vitally important. It's important for every book of the Bible, but it's certainly important for the book of Hebrews for you to consider what is the place of origin. In other words, where was the writer when he wrote it? And then what's the destination? 
And when we think about that, here's the things to think about. Audience, who's receiving it. We think about the historical setting at which time the book was written. We think about the date. And then, of course, we think about the key arguments that are in the book of Hebrews. Shall we turn to the very last book and the very second to last verse? All right. Turn over there to thir chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 24. Surely you can find that, right? Turn, turn, turn. Hebrews 13, verse 24. We're concerning, we're asking the question or, or seeking to think of what is the place of origin and the destination of the book of Hebrews. And that can include audience, historical setting, date, key arguments, and things like that. Okay? 1324. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. All right. Now, here we have some Italian believers who had left potentially their native land, probably Rome, and they were sending greetings through that writer back home. If this is the case, that letter would be sent to Italy, making the place of origin unknown, but the destination Rome. Okay? The other option is that it could refer to believers in Italy, and thus the place of origin of the letter was Rome, and in this case, we don't know the destination. Does that make sense? That's your two options when you read the internal evidence of Hebrews 13, 24. I know the phrase is somewhat ambiguous, but there you have it. It's either written in Rome and sent to a destination we don't know of, or... The destination was Rome, and we're not sure where it came from to get to them. I hope that makes sense to you. So, there are numerous suggestions that have been out there about the des destination of the letter. If it's not Rome, that's my belief. I believe it was sent to Rome. But the very title, Hebrews, see it? The letter to the Hebrews. What does that suggest? Well, it could suggest that it's a Jewish congregation that is still in Jerusalem or still in Judea, that's a possibility. However, I think the destination being Rome, being Rome, they're, they're the ones receiving the letter from the writer. I think it has more advantages. There is a historical note to that, and that is Rome, historically, was the first place that seemed to receive the letter and began to read it. We see that from Clement of Rome, who is actually quoting Hebrews very early, right around 96 A.D., Folks, that's early. And he's reading, he's giving quotes from the book of Hebrews in Rome. And so it would suggest to us that here's a group of believers. I think they're not Palestinian Jews. I think they are Greek, Hellenistic Jews that had come to the faith for the most part. We could argue that. But the fact is... What you have in the book of Hebrews is a letter being written to a Jewish congregation that had settled or resettled in Rome. So that's, that's kind of what we're aiming at, okay? That's the origin. The origin we're not absolutely sure of, but where they are receiving it is a group of believers in Rome that's receiving this book. What about the date? When was it written? Well, there's not a big consensus on this. It's my belief that it was written before A.D. 70. Let me show you something. Hebrews 9. Don't you love studying the Bible? 
All right. A couple of you said yes. All right. Chapter 9, verse 6. Does this help us with the date? That's what we're thinking about. Verse 6 of chapter 9. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What are you reading? You seem to be reading the writer's present tense understanding that sacrifices were still going on. Is that right? You, it's, it, that's, not, that's not shut the drum, shut the lid fact that we can conclude from that that the, that the sacrifices were still being presently made when there's a chance that he's referring to past tense events but speaking like it's present tense, right? There's a chance of that. However, I think it adds credence to the fact that sacrifices were actually going on in the temple when the writer wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay? All right, check out the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So what does that help us know? Timothy's alive. Timothy, well, I'll talk about this tonight. If you're really interested in authorship, I punted that, I kicked that can down the road. I'm going to deal with authorship tonight before we partake of the Lord's Supper because I didn't know if my, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, tonight we do authorship. I hope you'll come and listen to that. But the clue here is in the text was it was possibly written before the destruction of the temple, and Timothy was still alive. Now, chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near. Now, that, of course, is again speaking of the sacrifices made under the Old Testament covenant which could never fully take away sins. And they're repeated. They're continually being offered. So, what actually happened in 70 A.D.? In 70 A.D., the temple was absolutely destroyed save one wall. That remained standing. So, the culmination of the Jewish wars that started in 68 AD ended in 70 AD with the total devastating devastation of the temple in Jerusalem. And other than, or comparatively speaking, to the Babylonian invasion in 586, this was horrendous to the Jewish people. Just think about the magnitude of the destruction of the temple. The destruction in AD 70 brought an end. Are you all listening? It brought an end to the sacrificial system and the priesthood as the Israelites have known, had known it for all those years. They couldn't make a sacrifice. They didn't have a temple. 
They didn't have a priesthood. So, again, in chapter 10, verse 1, there's this repeated nature of the sacrifices. If the temple sacrifices ended in A.D. 70, which they did, to this day, they're ended. Right now, in 2023, they're ended. It's hard to imagine how the writer could have resisted pointing this out if the sacrifices would have ended before he wrote the book. Does that make sense? So, this particular section is stressing in chapter 10 the finality of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. He's seeking to prevent them from going back to that sacrificial system that could never take away sins. Why? Only Jesus can take away sins. So, they had become Christians. They had this tendency and this danger of digression. And going back to the way things were. And the writer reminds them, you can't go back. There are no more sacrifices for sin. It's been dealt with. There's only one who dealt with it. And it was Christ alone. So had the temple sacrifices already ceased, I think his argument would have been cast in a different guise. I hope that registers with you. It appears that the sacrifices were continuing at this point in perpetuity. I think they're continuing. So, in other words, all that to say, and you like, preacher, why don't you just tell us, I think the date is somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D. Or A.D. 64 through 68. What about the title, Hebrews? Well, the title dates to the earliest transcript that we have on the book of Hebrews And that's 200 A.D. That's a long time ago, isn't it? Most agree that the audience is a Christian congregation that has a particular Jewish background. The Jewish background, though, is, in my opinion, a Greek or Hellenistic Jewish background, not like the Hebrew Jewish background. In other words, like people residing in Jerusalem. Okay, So there were probably, they were probably Hellenistic Jews. It's written to a specific Specific congregation. Now hear me, all right? You're a specific congregation. We do know there's the, we like to call it the universal church. And that's all the people in the entire world, heaven or uh, on earth or in heaven that are saved. That's the universal church. You know that most of the people that are Christians are in heaven. (laughs) Right? So when we say universal church, that's what we refer to. But 80% in the 80% of the time when the word church is used in the New Testament, it's referring to a local body like this one. So most of Paul's epistles were written in a general fashion to be circulated among all the churches in existence. All right? Not so with this one. This one has a specific uh, focus upon a congregation, and and maybe even stronger than that, a particular segment within that congregation that was in danger of drifting away from Christ as the only source of salvation. So, that's important for us to think about. He's aware that his readers have gone through severe persecution. That that points to a specific time in history when they were persecuted. He's aware that they were engaged in giving generosity and benevolence and love That they demonstrated to other congregations. He was aware of the circumstances of their professed conversion. He was also aware of their spiritual state. So it's important to remember that this letter was written to a specific church that faces specific struggles. 
What was the situation of the readers? As you read this letter, you realize that this congregation or this segment of the congregation at one time had a past experience of faith and fortitude. That's what you find when you read it. He's clear while writing that these individuals had a vital experience, evidentiary experience where it was obvious that there was some change in their lives. Chapter 2, verse 3, let me show you. Dangerous words, kind of scary. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, that's a good word for today, isn't it? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it's very possible that the writer to the Hebrews was himself among the second generation of believers who came to faith in Christ, and he's telling them, I saw as a witness, I saw a testimony that the apostles preached to you, and you received the word, and there was an apparent transformation in your life. I think the writer potentially was a past leader of the church. He was among them. And he desired to come to them shortly. Don't turn, but listen to chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would not be an advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So this individual, I believe, was in and among these people. He was a leader of this church, and he's desiring to come back to them. So there was a time in the life of the church where many of these people had an apparent vital experience of God's grace and power. And the writer's going to appeal to this as we go through this over and over again and again. He's going to do this. They were eyewitnesses to the power of God's word. They had the good news preached to them. They called one another brothers. And they were partakers of the heavenly calling. They are the ones that the writer says has received the knowledge of the truth. Chapter 10, verse 26 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That get your attention? It ought to. It ought to. So, the writer will appeal to this reality over and over again. They had the good news preached to them. Here is the writer addressing a group of people who had at one time been impacted by apostolic preaching and the word of God which came through the Holy Spirit and with power. Their lives had been transformed, and they embraced gladly the things that they had heard, and the writer knew it because he was right there when it happened. Another thing to note about the audience is that at one time their lives bore testimony, not only of the converting power of the gospel and the word of God, but their lives also bore testimony of the life-changing power of the gospel. In chapter 6, which... Uh, if you're familiar with Hebrews or you're not familiar with Hebrews, uh, you probably still will be familiar with chapter 6 because it's usually the, de the debating chapter about whether you can lose 
your salvation or not. And that's the text that people who think you can will gravitate toward. Although, if you, if you know the context and you know what the text is saying, it's actually the greatest encouragement in your life that you can't lose your salvation. And we'll go through that to show you uh, in, after a while. But in chapter 6, verse 10, listen to what this congregation was about. Chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. The point I'm trying to make is the writer is appealing to what he saw this congregation do. Or this segment. They're ministering with their hands to the saints. And the writer is appealing to these former days where they did this. Chapter 10 is the most compelling chapter for us to figure out who these people are and what's their condition. Chapter 10, verse 32. Listen to the Word of God. I'll give you time to see this one with your own eyes. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I got saved and I went to VBS. It's another thing to say, I'm a Christian, and I go to First Baptist Church, Ozark, and I go to Sunday school, I go to preaching, I go home, I go to work. It's another thing for the writer to say, I saw your struggle with sufferings. I saw you struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Do you see this? I mean, here are people who are paying the cost of being believers. They're not, they're not just casual secret service Christians who you would probably have to, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, there probably wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you of it. That's not the kind of people we're dealing with here. We're dealing with people who suffered reproach and affliction for the name of Christ. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In other words, folks, they lost their homes because of Christ. I mean, that's who we're dealing with in this book. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I don't know what you think you're going to take with you, but I'll tell you now, nothing. The only abiding possession and treasure is in glory. Right? Not here. And they lived like that. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence. So... The writer knew they had this experience of vital grace of God and power. But the writer also knew that they had paid dearly for their faith. The writer could appeal to them concerning persecution, property seized, paying the price of discipleship. You did it gladly with your brothers and sisters who suffered beside you. You stood fast for your commitment to Christ and his people. This is the writer the group is addressing. There is a fascinating historical account that took place under what's called the Edict of Claudius early on in history around 49 A.D. If you're a historian, you may know about this. You kids learn this in history. You ever heard of the Edict of Claudius? No, you're probably not. All right. Well, let me tell you about it, okay? It was an edict that expelled the Jews out of Rome. Now just think about this for a moment. The complete expulsion 
of an entire race of people out of Rome. That's what happened under the edict of Claudius. So why did this happen? Well, the history says it was over a disruption of one called Christus. So what's going on? Well, it was the same edict that would banish Priscilla and Aquila from Rome and it would cause them to meet Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So think about this. Priscilla and Aquila were in Rome and they were of the group that was banished under the edict of Claudius and therefore met Paul in Corinth because of the banishment. So there were Christians present in a Jewish community in Rome. This disruption was the propagation of the Christian message. In other words, Christian Jews were preaching the gospel to lost Jews who were still claiming that you could be saved through a sacrificial system and or still waiting for a Messiah that had already come. So because they were sharing the gospel, it caused a disruption. And they were preaching Christ faithfully. And so Rome doesn't know how to pick between what religion or another. We, just, we know that they were sensitive to religion, more so probably than our country today. But yet, let's just get rid of all of them so we stamp out this rebellion. So it was the insistence by Jewish believers that the crucified Christ is the only Jewish Messiah. That only Jesus. So this caused an uproar in Jewish community. It led to the expulsion of the Jews. There was insult upon the Jewish people. Abuse. Check this out historically. Especially the loss of property under this expulsion. This would assume that the writer of Hebrews prepared this discourse for some of the Christians that shared in this banishment from Rome with Aquila and Priscilla around A.D. 49. All right, y'all with me? When did I tell you it was written? Probably 64 to 68. Okay, put this in your mind. Here is a writer who some 15 years later, after they had suffered like they had suffered in banishment, he's coming back to them some 15 years later, and he's writing this particular letter. And he knows they'd experienced the power of the gospel. He knows this. And it was not a response based on hearsay. So in light of the edict, they responded with firm commitment to Christ. They responded to a firm commitment to his people. They endured persecution. They uh, were clear in their profession of Jesus. They didn't move away from him. That's the audience. But that's the past experience. This is the present experience in Hebrews some 15 years later. Are you all awake, church? Are you listening to this? Is this relevant for us? Some 15 years later, now the, the writer has to give five warnings that will scare the life out of you. And he tells them, you, you were this way, but that's not the way you are today. So there was a renewed cost of discipleship that was on the horizon. Why? Because the neuro-persecutions were going to be worse. And we know this. The temple is about to be sacked. And it's going to be worse than you could have ever imagined. And he's preparing them that there's difficult days on the horizon. In other words, renew the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. And that's what the writer is trying to get them to see. 
You're in the midst of a crisis of your faith. If we're right about the destination of the letter to Rome, then this could have been right on the eve of the persecution with Nero. It's coming to Christians in Rome. Fifteen or so years ago, they stood firm in their commitment to Christ, and they locked arms with brothers and sisters in faith. They were ready to count the cost. They were ready to stand firm. Yet some 15 years later, they needed to pump the brakes, renew their commitment to Christ. Persecutions on the horizon. Renewed oppression is on the horizon. A renewed cost of discipleship needs to be done. And as the writer addresses their present condition, he tells them what they've become. Y'all ready? Chapter 5, verse 11. This is in the midst of one of the warnings in Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Here's a group of people. A congregation that had become dull of hearing. And over this period of time, they they did not press ahead. They had become spiritually immature, spiritually lethargic. And once that spiritual apathy settled into their souls, it brought certain perils with it that scared the writer to death on their behalf. And he's challenging them. This is the situation in the book of Hebrews. It's a group of people that, had grown, that have grown spiritually lethargic. After a vibrant beginning, they, had moved, they have now moved into spiritual apathy. They have become dull, lifeless, unresponsive. What was the writer fearful of? What were they in danger of? They were in danger of drifting away from the truths that they had once heard and believed. It's like you were first docked to the port and you were tied up and anchored tight to Christ. But now that rope is gone. And you're pushing out into the sea. And you're drifting and you're drifting and you're drifting. And you're not anchored anymore. And it's dangerous. That's how serious this book is. It, it is extremely serious. They were in danger of drifting away. Like a ship with no port. Aimlessly. In the sea. Many of this congregation were in danger of falling away from the living God because of an evil heart of unbelief. Brother David touched on this last week, didn't you? This was due to the hardening effect of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and always cost you more than you're willing to pay. Are you listening, young people? Every single time. The deceitfulness of sin had led to a heart of unbelief. Hear me, church. You know this. How many people have walked an aisle at FBCO and are gone? AWOL. AWOL from the faith. Agnostic at best, claiming to be atheistic, which there's no atheist person that exists in the world. Romans 1 clears that up finally for us. I don't have time to preach Romans 1. But the fact of the matter is, you may claim it all day long, but God says different. But here's the deal. Here are people defecting from the faith. 1025, listen. 
Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another as much the more you see the day approaching. Folks, some people have already defected from the church. Y'all look at me. He says this because there were already people who had left the faith and were not coming to worship services. They wasn't gathered anymore. Some of them were long gone. And he's reminding them, don't neglect coming together as, as others have, but exhort one another as much the more you see the day approaching. So some had already full force gone into apostasy and moved away from Christ as the only source of salvation. This book says if you do, you're lost. If you move away from Christ as the only source of salvation, there's no hope of heaven. Because he's the only way you can be saved. And if you move away from him, you never had it to begin with. So, they were in danger of throwing away their confidence in Jesus. How many times does he say, consider Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now sit down at the right hand of the Father. Consider Jesus. There were people carried away by strange teachings. They were in danger of rebelling against their God-appointed leaders. That's why 13, chapter 13 Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This group of people who had started out with so much earnestness and such zeal, this group had started off with steadfastness and a willingness of hope and enduring persecution for the cause of Christ. This is the same group that a mere 15 years later were in danger of abandoning their Christian commitment. I imagine that if you visit this congregation... At least the ones that were still hanging in there. And you said to them, do you really believe that you are in danger of abandoning your Christian commitment? I'm sure they would have said to you, no way are we going to abandon our Christian commitment. We might not be as earnest as we used to be. We might be mixing a few of the principles of Judaism into our worship just to make it more socially acceptable. But don't be ridiculous. We're not going to depart from the Christian faith. The point that the writer of Hebrews is going to make is that any defection and any compromise and any departure away from Christ is not a small departure. It is a complete departure. That's what he's going to say. There's no compromise when it comes to our commitment to Jesus Christ. To compromise is to no longer be committed to Christ. That's what the writer is aiming at over and over again. He's hammering a lack of response to the gospel by those people. And he's probing the implications of their Christian profession of faith. And he wants them to respond with faith and obedience. Now, folks, if this apathetic disposition was not decisively checked, it could only result in the erosion of faith and hope. And the writer's aim is to check the congregation's spiritual inertia. He's confronting the people that he loves so much with the truth. He's walked with them. He's suffered with them. And he sees what's happening. And he's trying to get them to lay hold of Christ so they don't fall away. Can those who have started so well be so zealous? Show this earnestness of faith. Count the cost. Pay the cost of discipleship. Can people like that become weary when renewed hostilities on the horizon and fail to count the cost and fall away? Can that happen? 
At one time, they were more willing to bear the reproach of Christ than they were on that day when he wrote the letter. However, the embarrassment, possibly, of being joined to Christ leads to an erosion. And they are spiritually phasing out. And they're in a, they're in a life of ease because they'd rather not as associate with this Jesus because it cost them too much. The spiritual ease lulled them into apathy, made them vulnerable. The potential of falling away was a real potential. Okay? So, the pastor that wrote this book had a pastoral strategy to keep these people locked in, to keep them following Jesus. And so, I think the book of Hebrews is a sermon led by the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Word of God, authoritative with every matter, right? I think it is a pastor who's pouring into his congregation because there are real potential dangers on the horizon. And he's encouraging them in this book, for lack of a better way of saying it, stick with Jesus and him only. Long ago, God spoke in many ways in various times. But in these last days, he spoke through his final and complete revelation. He has nothing else to say. He says, it's Jesus Christ and him alone. Do not move away from Christ. Never. Don't move away from him. So these people seemingly had a vital experience of grace in the past. And yet in the present, they were experiencing a crisis of faith. A faith of nerve. Here's reality. Some of us started out the Christian life maybe 5, 10, 15, 25 years ago. With great zeal. And you can look back and think to yourself how you really did, in your opinion, experience the power of the age to come. There was a time when you were in darkness and you felt like you were moved into the glorious light. You look back and you think, I tasted the good word of God. I was changed by it. You look back on those of your family and your co workers and others around you and you can say, I counted the cost during these days. You endured, you stood firm. When the pressures that bombarded the faith came, you sensed not a distance from God, but a closeness to God and your brothers and sisters in the church. You knew what it was like to say, I am at root. In other words, peel me back. And what you're going to find is a person who's committed to Christ no matter what. That's what you're going to find. I'm committed to Christ. I'm committed to his word. And I'm committed to his people. There was a strength Rooted in Christ. But over time, you've changed. Over time, you've changed. When you hear that word apathy this morning, it stings your conscience. Because your heart is dull. And you're lazy. And you're an apathetic person. Hear Hebrews 5.11. You ought to be teachers by now. Are y'all listening? Is anybody getting this other than me? I'm having fun whether you are or not. I'm, it's speaking to my heart. It's speaking to my lethargy and apatheticness at times. It's, it's speaking to my heart. It ought to be speaking to yours if you're saved. Right? You should be teachers now. But, and you're thinking, well, that ought to be me. I ought to be growing in my faith, but I'm not. There's a dullness that's crept in. There's a dullness that's settled in. And it's extended to every tentacle of your life. And you know it. 
right now as I'm preaching. Hey, folks, aren't you thankful for the Word? This book is for you. If you can identify with any part of that, this book is for you. Your priorities today look like they did before you ever professed Christ. And you know it. The things that held no attraction to you as a new, joyful follower of Christ are now tantalizing to you. And you care more about the world than you do about the Word. If that's true of you, you need this book. Because that's the danger. That's the warning. That's why he says what he says. You like, your life today looks more like your life before you became a Christian. In Revelation 2, the words would go like this. You've lost your first love. Right? Hear this. When the trials come and the testing comes of your faith and you're in this dull mode of spiritual apathy and you lack zeal and you lack commitment to Christ, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen? It's happened in this church time and time again. It happens all over Christendom every single day. This is not hypothetical. It's real. It's real. So some of us have been absolutely transformed, not by the word, but the world. We could be guilty of looking like the world, talking like the world, acting like the world, except for when we're in here. So when this crisis comes, it's coming, folks. What are you in? What kind of state are you in? Are you in this state of a crisis of faith and a loss of nerve? A boxer, I, I, I watched Rocky with the grandkids. Don't you love old Rock? You got to kind of phase out some of the language in that first one. Kind of nasty. But Rocky, he didn't just wake up that morning and say, Hey, Apollo Creed, I fight him in the morning. I, I better show up. No, this guy busts his rear end. He starts training. He starts doing everything he could possibly do. Why? Because the fight is coming. He gets in the gym. He starts months ahead of time. He conditions. He trains. Because it's going to go 10 to 12 rounds. He knows this event is coming. So he's training. Folks, the crisis is already here in our country. The crisis may be already there in your life. And you need to be ready. If not, you're in great danger. That's the theme of Hebrews. Listen. Watch out. Hold fast. If this is your condition, then Hebrews is especially for you. It's a call for perseverance. It's a call for commitment for all of us. It's not a call. Are y'all listening clear to this? It's not a call to perseverance and commitment based upon your own grit. It is a call to perseverance and commitment based on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That He's the one holding you. Don't forget that. He's the one that paid the cost. It's a call to commitment and perseverance, having your faith firmly anchored in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as your great and glorious high priest. You don't need a priest today if you have Jesus. There's only one great high priest. There's only one who paid the ultimate price. And that's what we're going to learn in Hebrews. This is what the writer will compel us to consider over and over again. Consider Jesus. If you find yourself in this apathetic and lethargic condition where your commitment level has just been drained out of you and you don't look anything like you used to be, the book of Hebrews is for you. For some of us, it will be the most timeliest message you could ever imagine. 
And for all of us, it will call us to commitment and perseverance as we keep our eyes on our author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1887, Elizabeth Hewitt and John Sweeney joined the words and music to form a wonderful hymn called More About Jesus. Verse 1 says, More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. Can y'all take more of that? More, more about Jesus. And the fourth verse reminds me of Hebrews. More about Jesus on his throne. Riches eternal, all his own. More of his kingdom, sure increase. More of his coming, prince of peace. Hebrews is a profile of the prince of peace. It's all about Jesus. Amen? All right. Tonight, I'm going to talk about authorship. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? It's it's anonymous. As you read the first of it, it doesn't say who it is. We'll study that together tonight. Listen to me. Don't zip up on me. Right? Stick that study Bible in there and zip, zip, zip. Listen, invitation. Listen to me. Listen. If I described you to a T this morning based on this book, some 15 years ago they were on fire for God. Now, wasn't the case. Reminds us of John. They went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. Where are you? Would you get on your knees this morning and say, God, speak to me. Lord, help me. Rekindle that fire. As Paul told Timothy, fan the flame. Fan the flame of the gospel of Christ in you. The best way to do that is stick to Jesus. It's learn about Christ. You can't get enough of him. All right? If you're lost today... There's no chance of heaven apart from Jesus. Jesus said it. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through me. There's no other name given among heaven, among men, whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus can save. Amen. Great God, we thank you for your word. Lord God, I struggled with how to get this out and how to Help your people grasp the nature of this book and why. God, I can only ask that what I failed to do, you would seal it in their hearts. Lord, only you can affect change in somebody's heart and life. Only you can make the word of God alive. God, would you do this during this time as we pour over the scriptures. Do our best to interpret it correctly. Rightly handling it. Father, for the present, Lord, for believers in the congregation, Lord, let us let this light a fire of recommitment, renewed cost of discipleship. Lord, for lost people, I pray they would see Jesus clearly. I pray you would save their souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. stand together and sing just as I am. 
Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to Praise the Lord. Uh, would you join with me to pray for uh, Miss Kay Leffridge? Uh, Mr. Bob went to be with the Lord. Uh, he made a lot of people laugh, especially me, the first time I saw him in our senior adult. And I'm so glad that, that David arranged that for me to hear uh, Mr. Bob. Bill Atterbury is here, and I think they were joined at the hip. Where are you, Mr. Bill? Yep. Friends since they were five years old. And I know he's grieving, uh, losing a, a friend like that. So uh, just pray for Miss Kay and Mr. Bob. That Mr. for Mr. Bob's funeral is coming up on Saturday. Uh, so uh, you can call the office. We'll make sure you have and know those arrangements. Uh, but God bless you for praying. Uh, David, anything we may have missed? Just come tonight for, you'll, we'll find out, the mystery writer of Hebrews. <laughs> Amen. And, and partake of the Lord's Supper. Amen. That's right. God bless you. God bless.